Today's scripture reading comes from Esther chapter 2. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the woman, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the woman, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, had suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of a God endures forever. 
Good afternoon, my name is Aaron, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you, uh, particularly if it's your first time here. Uh, last week, uh, we embarked on a new sermon series through the book of Esther. Now, why are we taking the next six weeks to look at the book of Esther? Well, one of the unique features about the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned once. God is completely absent from this book. In fact, uh, there is nothing remotely religious about this book. There is no mention of prayer or worship or sacrifices or prophets, priests, temples, no, nothing. I mean, there is only one mention of fasting, and that is about as religious as this book gets. In fact, this, this book is so seemingly non-religious that there have been theologians in the past that actually wanted the book of Esther stricken from the Bible. So why are we devoting the next six weeks to taking a look at the book of Esther. Well, I think the fact that God is devoid of this book goes to show that the world and culture that Esther lived in was very much a secular world, a world that is very much like our own. And one of the questions that Esther had to wrestle with was, how do I, as a follower of God, navigate through this secular culture that I live in? which is a question that we too have to ask ourselves today. How do we, as followers of Jesus, how do we live in this secular post-Christian uh, society and culture that we live in? And so that's what we're, why we're taking a look at the book of Esther. And our story began last week with a barbaric, misogynistic, womanizing king named Xerxes, who was very powerful, whose kingdom extended from Northwest India through the Middle East, down to Northern Africa. And King Xerxes holds uh, two banquets. One uh, lasts for a consecutive 180 days, and the second banquet lasts for seven days, which was more private for those that lived in the citadel or palace. And the point of these two banquets was to display his glory. And during the second banquet, the wine was flowing, and Xerxes not only wanted to display his glory, but he wanted to display the glory of his wife's physique, Queen Vashti. But because Queen Vashti did not want to pen, uh, patronize herself in any way, she refused to come to this banquet. And so as a result, Queen Vashti was uh, exiled and banished from the palace. And so now you have a king without a queen. And so King Xerxes wanted a replacement for Vashti, a new queen, but how does the richest, most powerful man in the world go about finding a date? He can't jump on an app. He can't go on a setup. So how does the richest, most powerful man in the world go about finding a new queen? If you take a look with me at verse 2, 3, and 8, this is what it says. <clears throat> verse 2, then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Take a look, at, take a look again at verse 8 and the words that are used here. In verse 8, it says, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, the young women were brought, Esther was taken. 
when you take a look at that language, you realize that this was not a beauty pageant. This was not an episode of The Bachelor where a lucky girl gets to participate in a rose ceremony or anything like that. This was law that was accompanied by law enforcement. There was no casting calls, no audition tapes,、uh, no arguing amongst the girls over who is here for the right reason and who is not. This, this was a draft. These young women did not volunteer to, to be in this pageant or in this contest. In other words, this was legalized trafficking, and it came all the way from the highest, highest authority. These girls were ripped out of the only life they had known. It's possible that some of them may have even been engaged to someone else, but they were ripped out of the only life they had known to join King Xerxes' harem. And harem is a word that we don't really use today, but it's another way of saying sexual property. They were drafted to join the harem of the original Hugh Hefner, that is King Xerxes. Now, how did they go about selecting which of these young women would become the next queen? Take a look with me at verse four. <clears throat> Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. The phrase that is used there pleases the king. This is obviously sexual innuendo. And so, what this passage is saying is that whoever sexually gratified Xerxes the most would become the next queen of Persia, and whoever did not. Would join his harem forever, where they could never marry again, because whoever was with the king could never compare the king to anyone else. So they would never know love. They would never know marriage. They would never have to have, get to have kids of their own unless Xerxes got them pregnant. It would be largely a life of a solitude and isolation. This is the life that they had known, and this is what was happening、uh, in the beginning of chapter two. And before we are too quick to judge this barbaric, misogynistic king and these primitive people for their primitive ways, again we first have to look in the mirror. According to IJM, which stands for International Justice Mission, there are 40 million people today, not 2,500 years ago, today, that are being trafficked, many of whom are sexual slaves. And I want to read you a story of one girl who has been trafficked for three years in the Philippines, named Marge. This is her story. Before she knew it, Marge was in a bedroom, and was asked if she wanted to take some photos. Then she was told to take off her clothes. She says, "I felt ashamed and scared. I did not know what to say to them." Because I was already in the bedroom with them at that time. Instead of enjoying school, Marge was exploited. Instead of going to the movies with friends, she was abused in front of a camera. And over the course of three excruciating years, Marge's world was completely overtaken by her abusers. With nowhere to run, Marge began to lose hope. Marge says, "At first, I could not accept it. It was as if I had violated myself." I had nowhere else to go. I had nothing to eat if I did not do those things. But that abuse, I did not expect it. I did not expect that it would spread, that it would be sent to other people. And obviously, what Marge is referring to here is pornography. And I want you to know that if you are addicted to pornography in any way, that you are contributing to this feeder system, a multi-billion-dollar feeder system that perpetuates. 
human trafficking, modern-day slavery, and social injustice. Let me give you a few numbers. In 2016, 2016, just two years ago, 4.6 billion hours of pornography were watched on just one website. 4.6 billion hours. That is the equivalent of 524,000 years of watching pornography. In 2016, there were 90 billion different pornographic videos that were shown on the, on the internet. These numbers are so staggering that it is getting hard to tabulate exactly what these statistics are because so many people are watching pornography. But I also want you to know that just as Marge was able to experience freedom, that you can experience freedom too from your addiction to this. That you no longer have to be addicted to this, but that you can experience freedom as well. The other thing that I want you to know, and the reason why I'm saying this, is because I want the ancient world and the modern world to collapse. I want the chasm to be closed because we are not that different from the ancient world. People are still people at the end of the day. The human condition hasn't changed that much, and the curse of sin still infects all of us in so many ways. We are actually not that different from them. And so all of a sudden, the scene now goes from King Xerxes and this quote-unquote beauty pageant, and it shifts now to Mordecai and Esther. And we read in verse 5 a little bit about Mordecai, and it says this, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Now, there's actually irony taking place here in verse 5, but one of the reasons why we don't see the irony is because we're not Jewish. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. Mordecai is actually a Persian name, named after the Babylonian and Persian god Marduk. So here you have a Jewish man with a Persian name. In other words, he has dual identities, but he's not the only one with dual identities. Uh, If you take a look with me at verse 7, we read about his cousin Esther. And in verse 7, it says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and her mother uh, had died. And so here we read about Esther, whose Hebrew name was Hadassah, but her Persian name was Esther, named after the Persian god Ishtar. Now here's the question. Why Why do Mordecai and Esther, why do they have dual identities? The reason why they have dual identities is because we all have dual identities. We all have multiple identities. So on the one hand, we are a collection of a lot of different things. Our gender, our race, our sexuality, our interests, sports, music, lattes, pokeballs, our experiences, sexually abused, prone to anxiety and depression, uh, upbeat and pretty easygoing, Uh, We are a compilation and a collection of a lot of things. On the other hand, our identity, which comes from the word identical, and something identical is two things that are the same, like identical twins. Your identity is that durable core that is in you. Even though you're a collection of a lot of things, your identity is that durable core that is in you that is always present in every situation and sphere of life. So at home, at work, at school, with your friends, in your romantic relationships, It is that durable core that is always present with you uh, wherever you go. And so, for example, Elizabeth Elliot once said, being a woman doesn't change who I am as a Christian, but being a Christian changes who I am as a woman. 
And so being a Christian then was her durable core. And it changes how she is as a woman, an author, a teacher, etc. Now, how do you figure out what your durable core is? Your durable core is whatever you think about and talk about the most. So if what you think about and talk about the most is, that, is work, even when you're not at work, being a workaholic, that's your durable core. If you, all you talk, talk about is your kids, even when you're not with your kids, being a parent that idolizes your kids just a little bit, that is your durable core. If you think your life sucks and you hate yourself, then your durable core is being a self-hater. We all have a durable core, and your durable core is whatever you think about the most. And so Mordecai and Esther were a collection of a lot of things. Mordecai is a male. He's Jewish. He's a surrogate father to Esther. Esther's a lot of things. She's female. She's Jewish. She's an orphan. She's lovely to look at. It's beautiful. So they're a collection of a lot of things. But what was their durable core? Their durable core was being Persian. Now, the question here now is, why did they hide their Jewishness? And again, we have to ask ourselves the same question. Why do we hide certain aspects of our own lives? Why is there certain parts of our own life that we conceal depending on the sphere that we live in? It's because we want to assimilate to a certain group of people. And if we feel like we're accepted by that group of people, we'll somehow achieve and acquire the good life. Every culture forces and pushes messages and stories about what we should be like. None of us is ever just being ourselves. We are the product of our culture. And these stories are so powerful that it shapes the way that we become. But even though these stories and messages by our culture are powerful, they are largely invisible to us. We can't really see them. And so what I want to do is make these invisible messages just a little bit more visible so that we become aware of just how much we are indoctrinated and catechized by our culture without even realizing it. So if you take a look at the first page of your bulletin, I want to read you a quote from Mike Hosper's book, Faith Among the Faithless. And Cosper writes, this is how most of our desires work, through cultural stories. We're offered images of the good life, pathways to love, romance, sexual fulfillment, power, money, and happiness. These stories grab hold of our hearts and they shape what we think we want. Think of all the ways our world tells us we're inadequate and all the ways it tries to sell us on something else that will ultimately make us happy. Our whole consumer economy is designed to prey on our sense of weakness and our longings, and it works. We are an anxious, rootless, desperate world. The, and one of the reasons why this is dangerous is because the philosopher Charles Taylor once said that we are all very porous. And what he meant by that is that we are all like a sponge. And we soak up all these stories and messages that our culture uh, indoctrinates to us, even if these messages are completely, completely absurd. We totally buy into it without even realizing it. So if you look at the second quote from Alan Noble's book, Disruptive Witness, which by the way was probably my favorite book from last year. Noble writes, sometimes these visions of fullness are patently absurd. Coke commercials promising people a worry-free life, body spray that promises to attract beautiful women, a luxury car that promises a sense of stoic confidence in your power and importance in the world, but we are in on the joke. Rationally, we know that none of these products will give us the fulfillment they advertise, but even so, their aesthetics still form us, especially when we are given the same vision of fullness in TV shows, on social media, and in other stories. If you take a look at the next quote by Scott Sauls, he says, we will use anything, good luck, status, career, family, humor, friendships, religion, 
sex, influence, or a financial portfolio to rewrite our stories and to give ourselves a new name. But why is this so? And the reason why this is so is because sometimes we don't really buy into the fact that Jesus can give us the good life that we want. And so in many ways, our identity is like a stack of cards. Being Christian is one of those cards in that stack of deck, but it's not on the top of the deck. Something else is on top of the deck that promises us the good life that we all desire. And so yes, we are a Christian, but it's just one of the things that make us who we are. It is not necessarily our durable core. Now, what is that thing for you? What are you building your life upon other than Jesus that you think will give you the good life that you need? For Mordecai and Esther, that durable core that they thought was going to give them the good life was being Persian. How do I know that? Well, if you take a look at verse five again, just the beginning part, it says, now there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. This verse doesn't say that there was a Jew in the city of Susa, but it says that there was a Jew in the citadel of the city of Susa. Now, how is it that a Jewish person lives in the palace of a Persian king when only Persians could live there? It's because he hid his Jewish identity. And he only acknowledged that Persian identity to give him the good life uh, that he wanted to experience. Mordecai had fully bought into the American dream or the Persian dream of what was going to give him the most hedonistic uh, pleasure as possible. Even though they had the option under Persian rule to go back home to Israel, they decided to stay in Persia because this is where the good life is all about. But when you live in two different worlds and you have to hide one at one aspect of who you are, and you straddle these two different worlds, it is only a matter of time before these two worlds begin to collide. And you are forced to make a decision about who you really, really, really are. And all of us have made mistakes in regards to this, where we conceal who we really, really are as children of God. And I want to read you a final quote from Donald Whitney on the first page of your bulletin. And this is what Whitney writes. You know the story... A person has been a believer in Christ for decades. Then without warning, it all collapses into a sinkhole of sin. Everyone wonders how it could have happened so quickly. Like most sinkholes, the problem didn't develop overnight. One small concession led to another until the devastating day when a tipping point was reached and the spiritual weakness developed by too many private compromises could no longer sustain integrity. And into the sinkhole fell their reputation, witness, ministry, and perhaps much more. Just as imperceptible movements of water underground can carry away the earth beneath, long before anyone on the surface perceives it, so the pressures of life can secretly displace the soil of our private spiritual disciplines long before the impact of their absence is visible to others. And when you and I continually place ourselves in compromising positions, we always have a choice. You always have a choice. But the longer you place yourself in compromising positions, it gets more and more difficult to make the right choices. And this is precisely what Mordecai and Esther were experiencing. It was getting harder and harder to make the right uh, decisions. And the, uh, the Persian culture began to influence them in ways where they began to assimilate to it. And how do I know that? If you take a look at verse 8 and 9, even though Esther was abducted to be a part of the draft, read with me what 8 and 9 say. Verse 8 and 9, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, Many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. 
Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Read verse 9. She pleased him and won his favor, and immediately he provided for her uh, the beauty treatments and special food. And in verse 9, it says that even though Esther was abducted into this draft, there was a part of her that wanted to win this contest. She pleased Haggai, and she won his favor. Now, on the one hand, you can say that this was self-preservation. Because she was drafted, she was just trying to make the best of a terrible situation, the lesser of two evils. If I'm going to win, if I'm going to be a part of this contest I don't want to be a part of, I might as well win it. But there was another part of her, seemingly in verse 9, that suggests that she actually wanted to win this contest. And why is that the case? You have to remember that Xerxes is bigger than life. If he lived in our city, there would be 100-foot billboards plastered all over him in Times Square. There would be advertisements of, of him on every subway. And being his queen would mean that there would be a certain amount of stature, prestige, influence, and luxury. And as the story goes, Esther actually ended up winning this contest. And she would go on to become the next queen of Persia. Even though she hid the most durable part of her, her Jewish identity as a follower of God. But even though she wanted nothing to do with her Jewishness and fully embraced the Persian life, God would use her new position to actually save the entire Jewish community from genocide. But before she even did that, she would first go on to save her new husband, King Xerxes. And we read a very small story within a story in verses 21 to 23, and it says, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. In all likelihood, Bigthana and Teresh were eunuchs. What is a eunuch? A eunuch is someone that had their genitalia castrated. And according to the historian Herodotus, who also writes about the life of Xerxes, Herodotus writes that King Xerxes would castrate up to 500 young boys every single year. Now, why in the world would someone castrate all these young boys? It's because scientifically we know that eunuchs grow bigger and stronger. But not only that, because their genitalia were castrated, they could never be a predator towards the queen or any of the females in the palace. They would never pose a threat. That's why eunuchs were always serving the women in the palace. And it's very possible, and this is just an educated guess, that Bigthana and Teresh weren't not happy about being castrated. They were a little bit upset. And so they devised a plan to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai heard about the plan and he told Queen Esther in this new position of power. And Queen Esther, even though she didn't have to, even though she didn't have to, she tells her husband, King Xerxes, about the plan. And as a result of that, Bigthana uh, uh, and Teresh are impaled, and the king's life is rescued. Now here's the question. If you were abducted to become a sexual slave for the rest of your life and trafficked, would you save that trafficker's life. Queen Esther could have easily dismissed the story, never told Xerxes about it, and had Xerxes assassinated. And who knows, maybe even experienced her own freedom. 
Why is it that she tells a man who abducted her, who did not, does not deserve for his life to be spared at all, after all the things that he does to, to his people, why does she save his life? It is an act of grace. This is purely an act of grace. And you know what the gospel is about? It is all about grace. Grace to people like you and me that do not deserve grace. This is a picture of the gospel. That when you and I don't deserve it, we experience grace and mercy at the hand of God. Particularly because oftentimes we conceal that part of our lives. We hide that part of our lives and we're sometimes even ashamed about that part of our lives. And yet Jesus comes and he dies for us anyway out of his love for us. Mordecai and Esther hid their identity because they were ashamed to be Jewish and they fully embraced their Persian identity to acquire the good life. Jesus, however, did not conceal his identity, but he revealed his identity, knowing that it would not give him the good life, but knowing that it would cost him his life. Why does he do that? It's because even though we are ashamed of him at times, he is never ashamed to be associated with us and to be in a relationship with us. But unlike King Xerxes, who forced people to be in a relationship with him, Jesus does not force us to be in a relationship with him. Instead, the choice is up to you. Because love is something that can never be forced. A relationship is never something that can be forced. It is only something that can be reciprocated by love. But when you realize how much Jesus loves you, how can we not love him back? If I were to give you a $100 bill and it was wrinkled, would you take it? Of course you would. If I were to give you a $100 bill and it had a coffee stain, some pen marks on it, would you take it? Of course you would. Because even though it's blemished, it has not lost one cent of its value. And similarly, as we take a look at our own lives, even though our lives are broken, messy, tarnished, and messed up, we have not lost one cent of our value in God's eyes. And the proof of that is the cross. Now, if he is not ashamed of you, and being associated with you, even though it would cost him his life. How can we hide the most important, durable core of our lives in our romantic relationships, at work, with our families, with our friends, praying before we eat? How can we hide that durable core of our lives? If we are going to be a faithful Christian in a secular context, you have to be prepared to look a little weird. I'm sorry. You have to be prepared to look a little weird. And that is the normalcy of Christianity. If we do, in fact, live in a secular post-Christian context. Otherwise, you may be over-assimilating to the cultural stories and messages that our culture feeds to us. But if Jesus was never ashamed of us to be associated with us, and we can't be with him. Let's pray together. Lord, the truth of the matter is, ever since we were younger, we always wanted to fit in with the crowd and with the majority. And that desire really has never left us. But help us to realize that being in a relationship with you is actually really all that matters, really all that counts. We will never have 100% approval in this life but we do have approval in your eyes. 
help our identity be so strongly based on that, that we really don't care how we look in front of other people. Give us a security instead of insecurity that is banked, anchored, rooted in the gospel and what your son has done for us. In Jesus' name I pray.